0: All right, we're right in the beginning of a 10, 11, 12 week, depending on what the Lord does, <laughs> uh, of a series on the Apostles' Creed uh, that I've entitled, We Believe. Historically, we know that the creeds began to emerge during the second century and uh, of the church's formation in order to give direction and boundaries to belief. The New Testament writings had been written, but they weren't widely distributed. And it is actually until 367, which is almost 400 years after Jesus had raised from the dead and and gone into glory, that we actually have a final list. So the churches of the New Testament and the Old Testament, which ones we would actually use and determine as canon, the church finally landed on the list. um, That they would say, this is where we draw our doctrine from, and et cetera, et cetera. So in those early days, they were kind of trying to formulate ideas about how can we make sure we're, we're not going off the deep end, going off the rails and stay true to the apostolic teaching, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. And so the Apostles' Creed was kind of a first step in that direction. The Apostles' Creed was used first as a baptismal vow. It was like a marriage vow. Uh, we talked about this last week, how they would come and as they were baptized, they would say, do you believe? And they say, I believe, that kind of thing. And over time, the I believe in God, the Father Almighty, became a declaration within the service as we believe. And the implications of moving from I to we are enormous, and, uh, which is what we're going to focus on this morning, this idea of why do we say, why did we switch from I to we? What are, the, what are the implications theologically of saying we believe? Writer and theologian James Sanders reflects on the American church when he writes, quote, many think of religion as a personal matter of concern, something between them as individuals and God, end quote. Though few of us would hold to the idea that community, being with each other, is inconsequential, um, our view of community is sort of haggard, in other words, weak, pale. And our unity is much more, the unity we have in mind when we think about being involved with each other is, is really what would be called philosophically an aggregate unity. Um, Uh, more than anything else. Aggregate unity means uh, there's a bunch of the same things. Like these are solo cups. So an aggregate unity is here's a cup, here's a cup, all these different cups, but we put them together and when we put them together, we have unity, right? They're in unity, okay? The problem is, is that unity doesn't really add anything to the individual cup. The cup is a cup, before it gets into the unity. And after it gets into the unity, it's still a cup. It's a solo cup. It's a bunch of solo cups, right? Okay, this is deep stuff, I get it. But the unity adds nothing to the essence of the cup. And so for many in the church, sometimes we think we come together, it really doesn't really add anything to us, it's just we're coming together. I'd be fine by myself, but you know, getting together is okay. The historical church did never held to the idea that the sole purpose of salvation was the spiritual enlightenment or formation of the individual. That was certainly in it, but that wasn't the purpose, the sole purpose of it. God always had a view of the human race as a whole. And in their treatment of grace and salvation, the church fathers kept their focus all through history on the human race and the body of Christ's role in the human race as a whole, not just on the formation of individuals. So Augustine says, for example, he's in the 5th century, he says, quote, You unite together the inhabitants of cities, the different peoples, nay, the whole human race, by belief in our common origin, so that people are not satisfied in being joined together, but become in some sort brothers. This is pervasive in the teachings of the church, not just talking about us as individuals and our private experience with God, even though that's in there, but how that that creates us into something else, something more, that we're not the same when we gather, that we're something more when we gather that wasn't there when we were by ourselves. This sense of a one kind of group, the sort of brotherhood, sisterhood of the church. The impulse of the Christian faith has always been beyond the self. The idea is that if you are a person of faith, that that idea carries global and even cosmic implications. Okay? Here's a quote from Jesus that shows us what's at stake if we don't see the us-ness of faith and we think of it simply as an individual private enterprise. This is Jesus. He claims that the glory of God is found not when you have perfect devotion individually, or perfect belief, but that the glory of God is found when you and I realize that when we connect, something happens there that doesn't happen when I'm by myself or when you're by yourself. And so Jesus says in John 17 in a prayer, my prayer, he says to the Father, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, which would include us, yabba doo that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something about us becoming us that communicates to the world that Jesus was sent to the world, which would imply that if we don't move toward us-ness more, it'll be more opaque to the world. The church should be known because of her willingness to move toward each other, races, peoples, different kinds of understandings about all the things that we know, that we keep moving toward each other. But what is the church known for? It's division. He goes on. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Why? Why has he given them? Why did Jesus give us glory? So that they may be one. The Latin phrase is "unt sumen sint." It means that we would be one. That somehow we wouldn't look at ourselves and think, "I'm alone enough," but I am one with the others. That somehow I become part of something that's bigger than me, and I can't be separated from the others. He says, "I am in I in them, and you with me. May they be brought into complete unity. That the, let the world know that you sent me, and I have loved them even as you have loved me." Even our ability to convince people outside of faith of the validity of faith is more about our understanding of our usness than our capacity to articulate the truths of the faith. There's something that happens when people watch and see that somehow Christ is known through his unity by us being in unity with one another. This means that Christians need others in order to be Christian. that it's not a solo enterprise. The gospel is actually obsessed, the New Testament is obsessed with us being connected with each other, that we are not solo cups. When we don't come together and recognize our need for each other, there are harsh warnings that are not only in scripture but in the writings of the church fathers, again to Augustine, who was convinced that being too individualistic and not recognizing our need for the organized church would be a move to be predisposed to error and would result in condemnation. This echoes Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 where he chooses that to say, I will deliver this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But what's interesting is what, what that actually looked like. What did he mean when he said that? How was he gonna deliver the person over to Satan? And he says, the way he does it is by pushing the person outside of the community. He's no longer allowed to stay in the group and it's that precise pushing them out is actually placing them in Satan's hands. In another place, Paul warned, for this cause, many of you are weak and sick and a few of you have died. He says, he says for we have not discerned ourselves. If we, if we would not discern ourselves, we will be judged. He's speaking about discerning the Lord's body, the church and our place in it. And he's saying, because some people don't think about their place in the church, they think it's a solo thing. Remember 1 Corinthians, some say, I'm a Paulus, I'm of this, I'm of that, I'm of Christ. And they were all separated in, in, in divisions. And Paul said, don't you realize how carnal that is? How upside down that is? How wrong that is? How we respond to the church of Christ is no small matter. It's not that God can't operate outside the institutional church. He certainly can and he does. But all Christ's followers should willingly be incorporated into the life of a church. Um, we're only whole when we're a part of a whole. You can't be whole by yourself. Saint Hippolytus wrote, quote, anxious that all should be saved, the Son of God calls on every one of us to make up in holiness one single perfect human, end quote. See, we're supposed to come together that somehow perfection can't be understood unless we do it together. This is why the biblical images of the church are things like a building. It's not pieces of a building, like a brick that makes a building. It's all of it together that makes the building. Or uh, being one flock, right? Or a family, or marriage. These are all analogies used for the church. A body, right? Where there's fingers and toes and eyes and mouth and ears, etc. It's not that the mouth is the body. It's part of the body. It's not that an ear is the body, it's part of the body. These images are where each piece needs the whole in order to be that. Or there's something wrong. I have eight grandkids, five of whom are girls, very, very precious. Uh, if you would ask them if they wanted to play with a doll, right? And they said, sure, and you handed them a leg. <laughs> They would look at you and go, that's not a doll. It is a doll. No, it's not. That's not a doll. Or if you give them maybe the arm, (laughs) This isn't a doll. Well, it is a doll, but it isn't a doll. Why? Because it's not whole. Pieces of things that are parts of whole when they're by themselves are a tad creepy. Right? Whenever something that is intended to be whole is diffused, it constitutes a mark of evil, according to Christian writers through history. Um, Something's wrong with things when they're separated from the whole in which they belong, right? So I went to uh, to the store yesterday. And, um, hold on a second. You're going to see why I'm putting these on. And I thought, you know, I was thinking about a tongue. And so, I went to the store, and I got myself... This part's further in. This is a cow tongue. Now, I'd happily let one of you girls take this home in your purse, feed it to your family in a little bit. But why is this so nasty? I mean, how do you... I mean, I should get a little closer. It's just... A cow tongue, right? Why does that kind of freak us out a little bit? I mean, I've never walked up to a cow and goes, you've never heard anybody walk up to a cow and go, oh my gosh, it has a tongue. There's a tongue in that thing. You would never get freaked out by a tongue inside a cow. But you pull the tongue out of the cow, and it got the nest. Why? Because it's not contextualized. It's not part of the whole. It's taken out, it's separate to the whole. I'm preaching in tongue right now. (laughs) When cups get together, when all the cups get together and hang out with each other, they're just a bunch of cups. Nothing about them essentially changes by coming together. But when the tongue goes to church, it becomes a cow. It gets contextualized in a way that changes its essence. It becomes something more than a tongue. It becomes a cow, right? That's how the church works. We become something more when we gather. Some of us are an eye, an ear, a foot. Some of us are a tongue in the church, a mouth. That's what Paul says, we're all parts of the body. But to be separate and alone puts us in the creepy category. I remember as a kid seeing this black-and-white scary movie, and, you know, I've seen it since because it was pretty dumb. But when I was a kid, it wasn't dumb. It was scary. And there's, in one of the scenes, this hand, all by itself, is crawling along the floor, right? And coming at this person, this one, what's so, you know, nobody, I never look at you and go, Nobody freaks out if the hand's on you. Cut the hand off you. Put it on this table or on the floor. People are going to freak out. <laughs> See, I wonder if some of us are just like scary movies spiritually. Because we're so independent. I don't need the church. There's something about dividing up a thing that's supposed to be whole that's connected with the dawning of evil. Saint Maximus wrote, quote, the devil, man's tempter from the beginning, had separated men from God and separated men from each other. Separation is part of the the very essence of what sin is. Sin actually means that, that missing the mark or separating from something that was supposed to be. In contrast, Henri de Lubac wrote, quote, God is working continually in the world, to the effect that all should come together in unity. By this sin which is at work within man, the one nature has shattered into a thousand pieces, and humanity which ought to constitute a harmonious whole in which mine and thine would be of no contradiction, is turned into a multitude of individuals, as numerous as the sands of the seashore, all of whom show violent, discordant inclinations. He's describing sin, how it fragments us. But many don't see the need for church life. They really see church as a, as a commodity, right? So the church ends up being a little more than like a club, like a bicycle club, right? Where uh, all of us are bicyclists, and we kind of meet each other. Oh, you're a bicyclist too? I am a bicyclist. We should get together and do a bicycle club. Well, how wonderful. So we go for rides together, we hang out together, as long as we don't fight too much or have too many disagreements we can stay in the club. But if it gets hard, then we take off. But the good news is we were bicyclists before we joined the club and we're bicyclists after we leave the club. That's about it. That's how some see the church. But what if it's supposed to be more? What if there's supposed to be a sense in us that we need the church? That we need others. Aristotle, the famous ancient philosopher, claimed that sharing our lives with one another is critical to being human. Even as a pagan philosopher, he saw it. He said that if, quote, if each person lives as he or she pleases, they live as the Cyclops do. Do you remember the Cyclops? Those were those mythical creatures who were destructive beings and had a single eye, They lived in caves, they wouldn't live with each other, but around each other, single eye, which was for themselves. I think because of the radical individualization that pervades our culture, that many of us stand guilty of being Cyclops. Our lack of awareness for our need for the church and our rabid individuality has made us monstrous. The biblical claim is that we have to be together in order to taste all the grace that there is to taste. Uh, This will make some mad. What if some grace, what if there is some grace that you cannot access unless you're part of a church? From our gospel reading today, Matthew 18, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now you know other texts, God's always with us. He's with us when he got up this morning, He's with you when you were sleeping with you in the shower this morning, I mean, God's always with us, he's with you in anything, he's always there, God's always there. But Jesus says, when two or three come together, I am there, there, right there. What he's saying is I'm there in a way that I'm not with you when you're by yourself. I am with you when you're by yourself. But when two or three come together, I'm there in a way that I'm not with you when you're by yourself. There's something that happens there that doesn't happen in your aloneness. I'm gonna just share three quick ways how that's true, how he's with us in our us-ness, and how it manifests itself. The first way is just the simple idea of what we do as sacrament. There's, these are us practices, not me practices. Things like baptism, God does something in it. But you can't baptize yourself. <laughs> you know, you don't go, okay, in the name of the book. <laughs> you know, in the name of the <laughs> You don't baptize yourself. You need another to baptize you right? Uh, laying on of hands is a sacrament. And when you lay hands on someone, you, you, don't, you don't lay hands on yourself. <laughs> Marriage. God does something when a couple marries. You, 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 you can't marry yourself. I know some of you want to. <laughs> but you can't marry yourself. It's an usness thing. It's an us thing. And God's there in that us, we're, and, and in a way that's, when you're by yourself, it's not there. It touches yourself, but it's not, it's more than yourself. The Eucharist. Technically, God does something when we pray over together as a community over that bread and over that cup. It becomes the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. And that is not something we're supposed to do by ourselves. I know many people in some circles do it privately, but it was never intended to be private. Devotion. Ordination of ministers. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, God does something in that. But you can't ordain yourself, right? These are the things. We need these modalities so that his presence comes to us that's not available to us in any other way privately. That's just one example. Another uh, example of this. Well let me say this before I say that. Every time we gather to worship (laughs) and we sing and we do all the things that we do, there's something that happens in our midst that doesn't happen when you're by yourself, even if you have a good tape. Or good music, you know, good music on the CD or something. The goal of the church listen to me tape, listen to that. (laughs) Good. I'm a Luddite. CD, do we even have CDs anymore? If you put it on your (laughs) 8-track. Hey, we're celebrating the 50 years of uh, being on the moon. That's right about the 8-track zone. Anyway, the goal of attendance of the church is not the private experience that we have in that. It's the goal of the group. I always get a little nervous when people say, I really felt God's presence today. I mean, I love that, but I get a little nervous about it. Or I get a little nervous when people say, I really got fed. Because I, I, I think we should experience being fed, I think we should experience God's presence, but, but I think that if that's primary on our thinking, we have a problem. We should subsume worship to not being about us, but it should be about God. Right, and I'd rather hear expressions that, you know, like this, I love that the church gathered in God's name today and we gave God thanks. I love that we joined ranks with all the saints around the world, with all those that are now standing in God's presence in eternity. And together we're praising, together we're giving thanks to God. How wonderful. I hope, and I love the fact that we participated in the meal of eternal life together. And that in a meal where there's no distinctions, where everyone is welcome and accepted, the holy meal that nourishes our whole being, spirit, soul, and body. Hallelujah. Right? And then you can say, I felt God's presence, and I really felt fed. But see, sometimes when we talk about church, all we're trying to do is describe how we felt or what we got out of it instead of saying, no, 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 something more is going on than that. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. <laughs> it's, 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 praise the Lord. Okay, second, second way that his presence comes to us in our usness, how it manifests in our usness is in our capacity to really see and understand truth. This is a tough one. Truth for the ancients was not discovered in the context of one's own mind with their reasoning as a standalone truth or opinion. One could never rise above the status of being a fool with truth alone. Everyone needed others to help process what they thought texts were saying and what was going on the authority that caught the attention of the saints through history was the general musings of the community of faith together not well what do you think well this is what i think what do you think it was they 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 whenever they got stuck when the community of faith together said we don't know what to say about this they would gather the leaders and have councils and they would work sometimes for years to try to figure out what our position would be on something if it was believed that if one wanted true life-altering wisdom, one must submit to bona fide authority outside of oneself. It was the community of faith that had the authority to establish or restrict interpretation of the scriptures because it was the church together that had selected which books would be included in the canon and which ones would not. Today, many falsely believed that the Bible was passively recognized as God's word throughout history and thought to be canonical that all Christians knew and believed from the beginning as though an angel delivered the Bible as a perfect bound shrink-wrapped book at the foot of the cross. But nothing could be further from the truth. Even before the canon was finalized, I told you it's 367 CE, Centuries of believers had embraced a common faith, shed their blood, filled the churches among the barbarians known all around the world in the barbarian nations. Their lives was what gave the word of the book. Every word of the book was authoritative because of their lives. Listen to this comment from Augustine. He's writing about the validity of Christianity. He's writing to this pagan Romanianist. And here's what he wrote. Quote, After all the Christian bloodshed, after all the burnings and crucifixions of the martyrs, fertilized by these things, churches have sprung up as far afield as among barbarian nations. Each day the precepts of Christianity are read in the churches and expounded by the priests. Those who try to fulfill them beat their breasts in contrition. Multitudes enter upon this way of life from every race, forsaking the riches and honors of this present world, desirous of dedicating their whole life to the one most high God. Islands once deserted and many lands formerly left in solitude are filled with Christ followers. In the cities and the towns and the castles and the villages and the country places and the private estates there is openly preached and practiced such a renunciation of earthly things and conversion to the one true God that daily through the entire world with almost one voice the human race makes response lift up your hearts to the Lord and quote he's certainly talking about the precepts of the church but notice what he's saying carries its authority is the willingness of the church to live a certain way The gathering and the commitment and the the willingness to forsake other things that people grab onto. The validity of Christianity is seen in the life of the people within the church. Not just the claims of a book. Though the authority of God worked through both the book and the church. There's no, no question about that. But church leaders, it was the miracle of the church herself that gave the message of the gospel and the Christian faith credence. Christianity may have been a sacred book, but the book did not spring out of a vacuum. The authority of the believing community was antecedent and guaranteed the authority of the book. It was before that. The church lived for centuries before the book was finally fully decided upon. The written text like the church was only an instrument of divine authority. Both the church and sacred scripture were active agents of the revelation of God. So here's my question. Do you just look at the book? How do the people of God around you and the history of the church speak to you? Trying to read the Bible without understanding and acknowledging the role that the church has had through history would be like trying to read a novel in a foreign language while only knowing a few of the words in that language. You would miss so much of the story. The point is the authority of the gospel was not found in the writings alone. It was vested in the people through whom the writings emerged. And it wasn't until the 16th century, think about that, 1,500 years past, that believers began to claim that there was no authority necessary to govern the Christian life and devotion other than just the Word of God, the Bible. Here, Scripture took on a whole new role as the final authority. And as the Reformation marched forward, some radicalized sola scriptura to mean that each individual rational reader could use Scripture to interpret it. It was thought of it as, as, itself as being self-authenticating, which meant that it was sufficient in itself to final authority for any Christian to take it, read it, and say, I understand it. There was no need for the community of faith, no need for the communion of saints. And worst of all, personal opinion began to rule in the pulpits and the pews of the churches. Now, let me stop preaching and just whine a little bit about this. (laughs) I want to whine about opinions. When I was younger, I had all kinds of opinions. And they mattered because they were mine. And I had a Bible in tow, and when I read it, I would get insight And then I thought, that's from God, and I would tell people on Sunday, this is what the Lord showed me, which was to say, I read these Bible verses, they made sense to me, so I put God's name on it. I called it revelation knowledge. And because it was God who showed me stuff, God forbid you disagree with me, because you would be disagreeing with God. Right? With Bible in tone, with common sense, I became my own pope. In the early 2000s is when I began to read the early church fathers like Athanasius and Augustine of Hippo, and Ambrose, and Tertullian, and Origen, Basil the Great. And as I read them, I was shocked because they challenged me on so many fundamental levels. I immediately discovered that they recoiled from personal interpretation at all. They felt that the proper interpretation needed to be part of the larger community of faith, and they had very different views about personal opinion. In fact, I never made the connection between sacred text and the community of faith before at all. I always just thought I had this direct thing from God to me personally. And I think there's truth in that. But I had radicalized it. And I, I sort of lived out in, 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 in um, you know, basic uh, uh, incarnation that, that old country western song. <clears throat> me and Jesus, we got our own thing up when me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going when we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. I've got CDs out there. <laughs> but now if you ask me what I think about a matter, my mind immediately goes, what has the church said about that historically? That's where I go. I'm not prone to nurse opinions. And frankly, I get bored quickly when people who have no idea what the position of the church historically has been on a given subject start to quote verse after verse rashly asserting their opinions to me. I want to say, please stop. Don't confuse me with someone who cares about what you think. Now remember, I'm not preaching here, I'm whining. So I get to say whatever I want. I mean, this is really where I put the ass in pastor. I mean donkey, I was King James quoting there. I I do love the King James Version. Sadly, there are still people who fail to recognize that we all come to the Bible with all these presuppositions that impact the way the Bible reads to us, from our personal experiences, to the influence of our parents, to Dr. Phil, our friends, the churches we have attended, Stranger Things Netflix series, <laughs> our prejudices, our expectations, hopes, failures, being American, and Oprah show, we once saw. Mm-hmm. See, all these things color the way we interpret faith, and we seldom consider how the historical church has grappled with common issues that face people through all generations. And the end result is that many are ruled by their opinions. And listen to what Augustine says. He warned against this. And this was the general thinking of the ancient world. Quote, There are people who are certainly to be disappointed, are disapproved and detested. There is the opinionated kind. They think they know what they do not know. To hold an opinion is disgraceful for two reasons. In the first place, he who is persuaded that he already knows cannot learn, even if the thing in question is something that may be learned. And in the second place temerity which is just that rash kind of brashness itself is the mark of an ill-disposed mind our knowledge we owe to reason our beliefs to authority of the churches we're talking with the community of faith and our opinions to error those who are of opinion that they know what they do not know exhibit faulty credulity this was the basic view of opinion in the ancient world Man, this is what we celebrate. What do you think? (laughs) No, I'm really not. And I really need to stop, start preaching and finish. But (laughs) I just really want to say to you that the scripture was never thought to have been conflated with personal opinion, That that with common sense. It was never imagined that the scripture was under the domain of individuals. There was no private understanding of the truth. Scripture was never understood privately and it was always in tandem with what Peter said that knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. That the first 15 centuries of the church were deemed they looked at what the church had been saying about sacred texts. There was a historical community of faith. That's what is important. Now, the third way, my final way. Is that his presence in us, his usness manifests when I'm having problems believing, when I'm struggling with something bigger than myself, whether it's sin or whether it's problems. The we part of the church is where I taste Christ's presence. There was a couple that came to me after I was preaching in New York City at a church there. They came forward and my son David explained to me what their situation was. They had said, David said, Dad, this is that couple I was telling you about that last year they lost their son. And the son, just a brand new baby in the hospital, they couldn't find anything wrong and all of a sudden they are about ready to leave. Something spiked and a fever or something and they stopped and they started trying to investigate what happened and within a day or two that little boy died. And they were crushed, and they were heartbroken, and, and they processed through all that thing, took them a, a, you know, just, you can understand that, those of you that have any kind of loss like that. After a few months, they found out she was pregnant again, the wife was pregnant again. And so in one sense, they were a little bit afraid, but then another sense, oh, this is, you know, maybe God's redeeming this in some way, and they were starting to get hopeful, and they, they come to deliver the baby, and um, beautiful little girl. And they were laughing <laughs> and smiling and so you know, the ugliness of what had happened is kind of put behind. The, the doctor said, she is perfect, you know. Right before they are taking her home, something happened, completely unrelated to what happened before. And within three days, that little girl was dead. And so this had happened a week before they're standing in front of me. And they looked like there was no life in them. And they're just like looking at me. I was shocked they were in church, to be honest with you. Because a lot of times people run from church when that happens because they feel judged or what I do wrong or whatever, that kind of thing. Didn't have enough faith, that kind of stuff. And I looked at them and I, I said, Would, do you mind if I pray for you? And they kind of nodded empty. And I put my sh- uh, hands on both of their shoulders together and I said, you know, I just want to say I'm shocked, really, and so impressed that you're even here so many people run when this kind of stuff happens because they just can't process the promises and the delight. You know, some of the things we say, praise God or whatever, you know, when you've really had a hard issue, it's just hard to come sometimes to church. And I said, listen, I said, don't feel bad if you feel bad, you know, don't try to fight through this by yourself. I said, "Here's, here's what we say. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, when you can't, we can. And we believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. We believe that he came, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried when you can't believe that, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven and is going to return. We believe that when you can't. We believe in the Holy Spirit if you can't. We believe in the church when you can't, in the communion of saints, in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the dead when you can't. And we believe in the life eternal. So just keep coming and don't try. We will do it for you. And as I was saying that over them, tears began to come. See, this is what's so amazing about the church, is you don't have to be all that. You can be a toad because you are a toad. When you're struggling, when you can't seem to get victory, when some kind of sin is overtaking you, when there's an illness that doesn't seem to break or you're dying or whatever, whatever is going on, this is the place to be. And because it's the us-ness of this space where Christ will be with you in ways that he won't be if you run off by yourself. We believe in God. Now, the statement we believe, and then it iterates a bunch of stuff the question is what does belief mean is it certainty I mean what are we what is that all about and that's what we'll start talking about next week so this is the second message and we got through we (laughs) it's encouraging isn't it let's stand and just for a moment I'm really this is this is a special altar call I'm not going to have you come forward but just for a moment, let me ask you, who is the church to you? Is she critical in your experience, in your mind? Who do you trust in your faith besides God? Of course you trust God, but where else is God found in your mind? Just when you privately separate yourself in a song or when you read the Bible privately? Have you given space for the us? Have you raised your expectation to the parts of us? Because if you don't, you might just be creepy, like a floating tongue or an eyeball you found on the street. Those are just not good things.